This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. The sort of issues that the church in the West is facing post-pandemic is the same in many parts of the world. So they were saying they have exactly the same issues, you know, not everybody's come back. Uh, some people, you know, some families quite like the idea of watching the service in your dressing gown with the kids playing around. And I was quite surprised that they're finding, they were finding exactly the same issues and actually they'd asked me to address the subject of uh, reboot, what their conference called Rebooting the Church Post-Pandemic, which is the same sort of theme as all of us are having to look at. And that's sort of being reflected in very different parts of the world. And they're hearing because of the interconnectivity of, of, you know, of everything in church life today, the same sort of ideas, you know, should house church only be the be the basis for the future? Should we deconstruct the church? They were they were finding people saying that as well. Um, now, of course, the problem the problem with that is that actually, in persecuted parts of the world, that's how the church is growing, but multiplying, and in places where it's like the one I quoted amongst Roma Gypsies in Russia, is also when you're multiplying amongst a particular ethnic group within village communities, which are largely inaccessible to, well, they're not, I mean, you can get there, but it's such vast areas that it's very, very difficult to send people, then they are working. And so the problem always is that... Uh, when, when solutions to issues are sort of being trotted out all the time, contextualization goes out of the window. Do you, do you understand? And so the context, so what you've got to always look at when these things happen is what are the principles behind that success? How do we apply those in our context? That's how contextualization should always be working. When you look at biblical principles, you say, okay, what are the biblical principles here? How does that work out in our context? How does that, how does changing culture affect how the biblical principle is worked out? Not copy from one place and put it in to another. Okay. And that's so important at the moment because there's so many exciting things happening over the world, which are positive in relation to some of the solutions that are then put forward for other places, um, that you can say, okay, let's adapt that, whereas actually adaptation depends on context, principle depends on the application of the word of God and cultural ways in which that works out in different parts of the world and at different times and in different generations. And that's a principle for looking at all this stuff 
at the moment, which is some of the start things that, the, that I was teaching over there. And so they are facing the same sort of things. Um, you know, house church, the basis for the future. Should we be doing more online? Is that the future? Are the days of big meetings over? They were asking exactly the same questions as people are uh, saying in our context. And I would say there's three, three dangers, one I've already touched on, but I'll mention it again. Three dangers that we're facing in how we apply that at the moment. Danger number one is we decide too early in a process rather than hearing God clearly. Okay. Change always takes time. I know that's not very popular with some people who like to change like that. But change and transition always takes time. You need to be sure you've heard... Not, you've, you need to be sure of two things. Firstly, that you are applying scripture genuinely. And secondly, that you've heard the prophetic word for your context, which you can demonstrate is how God is leading you. Do you understand? Okay. And so, uh, so we don't decide too early in the process. Secondly, biblical values always govern our response, not current trends. Okay, biblical values govern our response, not current trends. And thirdly, as I just touched on, contextualization remains very, very important. So, now the scripture, I apologize to those of you who remember other people's teaching. All preachers remember their own teaching better than than anybody else remembers. Have you noticed that? Uh, But uh, I did use this scripture as the foundation of what I was saying on the 2020 um, New Frontiers Conference that we broadcast online. And currently so many of you may have seen it, but don't worry about it. I'm going to repeat it, all right? Not the whole talk, I'm just going to repeat where the scripture we're going to. So let's look at a scripture together, which I think is so, so... I'm just living with this. I'm living with all the parables of the kingdom at the moment. Have been for the last three or four years, actually. They've just been so instructive to me. I do, I do read other parts of the Bible as well, as you'll notice from the second session. But here we go. Here, Matthew 13, 31 to 33. Here is another illustration... Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used for making bread. Even though she put she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour. It permeated every part of the dough. By the way, I'm reading NLT. Um, so I'm just going to look at that scripture by way of introduction, then I'm going to draw five or six things that I feel we need to learn in this season. Okay. So... The main point of these parables, of course, is the contrast 
between the smallness and apparent insignificance of the mustard seed and leaven and the largeness of the end result. Okay. And I just think we, in a day, you know, one thing that is being, is becoming clearer to me today is that just going for size is not the way of the kingdom. Okay, the way of the kingdom is go for seeds and leave size and eventual growth with the Lord. And that may be where you are. It may be in the next generation. It may be across the world into other places that are influenced. You don't know. I think that really helps us. Otherwise, we get, we get competitive. We get uh, worried too much about the external. Rather, now please, I'm not saying therefore just keep everything small. What I'm saying is we do work of the kingdom and how that works out, we know it will grow because seeds always grow. We just don't know how, where that will be expressed and what the effect of things are. I mean, one of the things I'm rejoicing in my own ministry at the moment is, and this is, you know, what you do when you get a bit older. Um, some of you will get there one day. Uh, you know, now, now I'm, I'm retired now, you see, you know. It means you do the same thing without getting paid. But the, <laughs> but, uh, so, not quite the same thing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so, basically, one of the things I've noticed as I get older is that what I've done earlier in my ministry in terms of small steps into new arenas in the world or new areas of the country, next generation are multiplying it far more. That's great. Really is. Now, when I see what's happening through our family of churches in the Middle East now, so many more churches. I, yeah, okay, I was somehow privileged from God to pioneer what we were doing in the Middle East. We only had it very small. Now it's multiplying like anything. Okay? That's great. So you don't know. Now, if I'd look back and say, well, what, what, for all this work in the Middle East, what you got? 30 churches across a number of countries? Oh, that's just looking at it from, that's not very much, that's not very big. But if you look at it from the point of view in the next generation, loads of indigenous leaders are doing it far better than I ever could. That's great. Do, do you see? And this is the principle of doing kingdom work. It's like sowing a mustard seed. And smallness yet growth, therefore, is always the way the kingdom works. Um, the early church addressed by Matthew here would have heard Jesus teaching his disciples to have confidence in telling this and living this apparently little message of Christianity which will transform the world. And that's what happened. 
Matthew Henry puts it, a grain of mustard seed is small, however it is seed, and it has a disposition to grow. <laughs> That's what seeds do. They grow. So think of your kingdom work and your church work and your church planting work as that. That's consistent with Matthew's message throughout his gospel. So you get a tiny baby worshipped by the despised shepherds and Gentile magi. That's all who came. Outcasts in both ways. And the African Bible commentary, I recommend you use that, particularly if you're in a multicultural church, which I hope more and more you are. Always check, check out what that says. It gives you insights that you wouldn't otherwise get. It says, and it's not that expensive, okay, it says this, Similarly, we recognise that just as great rivers have a very small source, so great movements in history often start in a single moment with an obscure word, thought or action. Like a young woman bears her firstborn son in a backwater of a mighty empire and names him Jesus. <laughs> no one heard about it. You know, it, everyone sings O Little Town of Bethlehem now. But at that time, it was the backwater. Okay? That's where it was born. And then, in Matthew's Gospel, when there was a healing revival amongst the crowds, Jesus suddenly walks away. And goes up a mountain to train his disciples, his embryonic church, this seemingly inadequate group who would be the light of the world and the salts of the earth. We must get the right balance, as Jesus did, between serving crowds and making disciples who will multiply for the future. Jesus managed to do both. Again, it wasn't just one or the other. But he knew how to get that balance right. Whereas the emphasis in the Western church has been on the big numbers, not on the reproducing for the future through making disciples. Okay? But it's both. And then... The instructions to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount start with the grace of God's blessing, not on the successful and the powerful, but the crushed poor in spirit, those who mourn but hunger for righteousness and justice, the persecuted, the small, despised and persecuted are the true light of the world. That's the seed. And these parables tell the same message as is consistent with Matthew's Gospel. Mustard seed means though our contribution is always small, yet it reaches the nations of the world. The birds of the air, as you know, I'm sure, represent the Gentiles. You know, they, they had to speak in... Our persecuted people have to speak in code. Our occupied people have to speak in code. You find it everywhere. They're, well, you know, I've gone into lots of places. They always have their, their names for the authorities that can never be picked up. Or if they can, they sound innocent, you know. So they always refer to the Roman occupier as the birds of the air. And the Herodians they talked about as the foxes. Hence, the foxes have holes. The birds of the air, they can, you know, both the half-Jews of the Herodians and the Gentiles, they've got a home in this land. But the Son of Man in Emmanuel's land has nowhere to lay his head. 
Get it? <laughs> That's how they talked about them. And so these, you know, the birds of the air even will be transformed by this message. The nations will be changed. Because, and also, it's ironic really, because in the Old Testament, because always in Matthew's Gospel, he's talking about how the Old Testament will be fulfilled. He says it almost more than anybody else, but even when he's not saying it, he's still doing it. And so, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel prophesies a cedar tree, which the animals and birds of the air will come, in, come to. If you remember that, those of you who are well acquainted with Ezekiel, but that's where he prophesies this cedar tree. And then Jesus says, uses that, exactly the same picture, but calls it a mustard bush. Okay, grows five or six feet. You understand? Because it's almost irony that Jesus is using, with his irony he's using here that even the fulfilment of the prophecy looks far smaller than the original prophecy was, and yet it will transform the world. Hallelujah. Remember that in all you do. Okay. And leaven, because it was leaven rather than yeast, if you know the difference. Uh and then they're both a form of yeast, but leaven is what you take out of the previous loaf. You know, my Silla's been doing that with soda, sourdough for like 20 years now. And uh, it all started with a little bit of starter that she got from windfall apples in the garden, mixed it with a little bit of flour, and we're still using that 20 years later to reproduce the bread each time. That's what leaven is. And uh, just thought, that's totally irrelevant, but I hope... uh, (laughs) Yeah, just just give you a little bit of fun. That's very interesting. Yeah, of course it is. There you are. That's what it was, because that's how they made bread in those days. And the leaven is hidden in the dough, and it makes a crazy amount of bread. We miss that because it says three measures, and you haven't a clue what that is. But actually, it could feed a hundred people. This is massive results again. And so, the, uh, the and it's exactly the same amount because remember, he's always fulfilling the Old Testament. Exactly the same amount as was made at very significant times in the Old Testament. So, and that would have been Matthew's mind. Mind. So it was the same amount that Sarah cooked when the birth of Isaac was announced. You remember the uh, um, when those visitors came and uh, he ran and got the old. The, the calf and everything else and fed the visitors actually Sarah made the bread and that was the same amount as this enough to feed a hundred people goodness knows how many people were there but they were having a real Middle Eastern feast to celebrate these visitors coming so that was a significant time Isaac is coming the, prophet, the promise is being fulfilled and so that would have been in people's minds when 
Jesus said this. And it was the same amount as Gideon made when the angel appeared to him. Okay, again, a significant time. And what was the significance of the story of Gideon? Smallness overcomes. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Don't worry. Trust God. Believe that seeds always grow. And sometimes, do, do any of you like this? Are you any of you like this? That you look back on what you've done and say, gosh, what, have, have I accomplished anything? Or is it just my insecurities? Do any of you? <laughs> and it multiplied. So, what are the things that we've always believed that God is saying to us in post-pandemic? Um, and the first one, I've touched on a lot already, the importance of disciple-making. Now remember, as I say, you balance the two things. Jesus blessed the crowds, trained his disciples, and we should be doing that. We bless, we bless the hungry. We bless, you might say, well, not all of them respond. No, they don't. That's okay. They didn't to Jesus either. He just blessed them. Okay. So the idea of all you do is your little group is not quite the idea. No, no, you bless. You bless through social action. You bless through large gatherings. You bless through friendships. You bless through being at work. You bless all these days, the crowds, and then at the same time, you don't only focus on that, you're also saying, who am I training? Who is developing? How many leaders, like Emmanuel said? Well, how do you plant? Two, what was it, 120 churches in Uganda? Well, I just train leaders. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? I mean, you do that, don't you? Yeah, well, why can't you plant 120 churches? Oh, well, no, 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 that's the condemnation. Don't worry about it. Just do it and see that reproduce itself across the world. Simple. But make sure you're doing both. And Matthew 13, the chapter we've read, is Jesus teaching, he's training his disciples. That's what he's doing specifically. He's teaching it to the crowd, then he takes his disciples into the house, explain what it means, and so that they can live kingdom that way. That was how he did it. Um, and he's always training his disciples in Matthew. You know, train them through the Sermon on the Mount, how what their inner attitude should be. That's ever so important. Please don't train people just to do things. Don't train them only in skills. Train them in inner attitudes. Loving your enemy. Forgiving those that hurt you. These are the things that really are important for disciple making. We... A couple of Sundays ago was Remembrance Sunday. Or was it last Sunday? Anyway. Um, And... You know, most of our churches do a bit more on that than we used to at one time. And we did it. And one of the two people led it. One of the guys was a one of our 
leaders from South Sudan in the church. And he, yeah, he fled as a refugee. He had to flee from war. His family members, several of them were killed. Later, he went back to share, because he'd become a believer, to share the gospel with the tribe that killed his brothers. And he said it was a massive thing for him that he forgave these people. Do you understand? I thought, we felt that was, it was good that we, from a remembrance, we're a multicultural church, so remembrance is not just our wars, though it, that is part for a good proportion of the church, but it's wars all over the world and, for, and loving your enemy and forgiving those that hurt you and persecuted you. So important, isn't it? And so your, your, um, it was just great to see him doing that. Not that he mentioned any of that while he was doing it because he he'd shared that before when he'd been preaching amongst us. So, and so all the time, Jesus is training. So training through the Sermon on the Mount on in attitudes, sending them out on mission, like he did two by two. That's how to, how to do mission. And then by testing their faith in various things like the feeding of the 5,000 and the storms. And he... He just jokes with them a little bit. Oh, you little faith ones. <laughs> well, that's most of us, isn't it? Hey, eh? You little faith ones. But actually, he's training them and he's developing them. And in this, he is training them to have different expect. He's training their worldview in, this, in Matthew 13 to have different outlook on the kingdom than they'd been brought up to believe. Okay, which is a massive point in disciple-making. Remember those things? Inner attitudes, how to do mission, how to exercise faith, and transforming your worldview. That would be quite a good thing for disciple-making, wouldn't it? Okay, so make sure we're doing that with, with one another. And so... Jesus ends this teaching in this section with a clear call to training disciples who pass on things to others. He said this, and it's one of these things that's always a bit difficult to understand, really, in its context. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained or discipled, same word, for the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've told you the stories. Now you tell what you've learned to others. If you've understood, have you understood? They said yes. I'm not sure they'd... That was a little bit of an overstatement. Of the, <laughs> but... Uh, whoops. Um, sorry, I'm not sitting on the stool like you had yesterday. Forgive me. I'm, I'm kicking it. Okay. So... <laughs> the... Um, he says, 
you've understood, then everyone discipled will become, you're suddenly like a magnificently generous householder of a large estate who brings out of his treasure all the things you've got. That's disciple-making. Suddenly, somehow you take these poor, insignificant people, and yes, you teach them, it's just like a mustard seed, it's just like a bit of yeast, or leaven. But it is also, you're carrying the amazing riches of the kingdom of God, and you're sharing them with others. Get it? And so he's saying, what you've learned, tell others. That's what he's saying, which, of course, is the purpose of disciple-making. And disciple-making movements, which I alluded to earlier, which we do need to learn the principles from, and which they're working out in the context in the North Caucasus that I talked to you about, amongst the Roma people. Um, But you, you... Train people to train others right from the start. That's the one of the principles that they've put into practice in those disciple-making movements. That principle we must learn from. Expect people to serve from the beginning. You know, expect people to. I remember. I remember hearing about in a war zone talking to a pastor, and his 85% of his church fled as refugees, so he wasn't left with much. But he started rebuilding and uh, did remarkably well, really. Uh, but he said, I've had to change my worldview, he said, because uh, our church doesn't consist of many believers yet. <laughs> we get quite a big crowd because of the, all the social action work they've been doing. He said, even all our welcome team aren't saved yet. <laughs> and so... <laughs> and so... <laughs> and that's, but that's OK. He said, I've had to change my... I've had to change completely the way I look at things. Because I'm now learning that to build a church, I have to start from where people are, and discipleship is a journey which doesn't start when people get born again. It starts before they're born again. As you are influencing them for good. We're finding that particularly working in Muslim countries. You know, how do you, where do you first start discipling someone from a Muslim background? When you first meet them. Because you are demonstrating, or should be, a different worldview and outlook on life and inner attitude. And I think that probably applies to secular people as well. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you see? Because what he's saying is, what the DMMs do is they train people even before they're saved to tell the stories they've just heard the previous week to others. So it gets this process going. Okay. Second thing I think we need to learn, it's all right, I'll go through these fast. (laughs) Don't worry. And Richard gave me permission to go from when we started, not from when the programme said. (laughs) 
so blame him. Okay. But I, I, I still go quick because I've said a lot already. Leadership gifts are for equipping, not performance. Now, we've always believed that. We've always taught Ephesians 4, haven't we? Some of us. You know? <laughs> Ephesians 4 is, to every person in the church, grace has been given, a gift of grace in that context. Doesn't start, Ephesians 4 on gifts doesn't start with leadership. It starts with everybody. And it ends with everybody. A mature church is when every part does its work. Okay? That's the beginning and end of that section on gifted ministry. But in that, certain leadership gifts equip the church for the work of the ministry. Therefore, we must never see our work as primarily a performance, but primarily an equipping exercise. Okay? And therefore, if leadership gifts are for equipping, not performance, it means things won't always be done brilliantly. Remember someone saying to me once, if your worship is always outstandingly excellent, it means you're not training worship leaders. <laughs> do, you do you understand? Same for your preaching. If your preaching is always brilliant, you're not training preachers. Well, this is right, isn't it? Because it's not a performance... And that, again, is where the mega church and big, big thing has gone a bit astray. Because what mattered is the, is the quality of the worship. In fact, oh, <laughs> they talk about the worship experience. Have you heard that expression? The only person who experiences worship is God. <laughs> We worship. <laughs> we don't experience worship. <laughs> and it's, we just need a bit of a, a bit of a correction on this sort of thing. Well, I say the only person experiences worship, the only person that should experience worship <laughs> is God. I guess all our idols do as well. But, so, so it's leadership gifts, therefore, for equipping, not performance. And also equipping for the church scattered as well as the church gathered. And so Ephesians 4 is equipping people for the kingdom, not just for what happens within a church gathering. Okay, because the context is Christ reigning everywhere. So it's a kingdom context. Therefore, we're equipping people all the time for what they're doing. Because the church, they're part of the church all the time. The church just comes together from time to time. But all the time, they're, they're working out the kingdom life expressed through the church. Okay, next, a strong, and I've touched on this already, so I don't need to say any more. A strong kingdom emphasis, not just church. Make sure we're equipping people for all they do in life and not just for what they do when we gather. Because that, again, is too much on the performance thing. 
Okay, how do we? And so the church, as well as being the agent of the kingdom, so your church members are the agents of the kingdom in the world, they're bringing the effects. doesn't mean they bring the kingdom everywhere exactly, but they bring the effects of the kingdom everywhere. Okay? You know, people only enter the kingdom when they're born again. But the effects of the kingdom, we've just got to be a little careful how we express that, the effects of the kingdom are to be seen everywhere, wherever you go. And the church, as a community, prophetically demonstrates the kingdom. Okay, so the church, so how, how the church lives as a community, not just its meetings, but how it lives as a community, is to demonstrate that Christ is ruling in, in all the things I talked about in making disciples earlier. Okay, next. Breakthrough in mission, because I believe that it says about the nations will come. You just plant a seed and the nations come. And so God is calling us, and I know we believe this, to break through penetration to many nations, because we serve across the world, many nations where we live, many social groups, and the next generation. Okay, that's a massive task. You're working not just to do things well now, you're working in order to break through into the various ethnic groups where you live. You know, churches should reflect their communities. Okay, we work hard on that. You know, if you're in a multicultural place, you know, and you've got a monocultural church, something ain't quite there, yeah? And we've got to ask God to help us. You've got to, you've got to act positively to do it. You know, we've had, to, we've had to act positively. I mean, in, in many of our churches, you can't have too big an eldership team, can you? In many of our churches, lot, a lot of people would have the character of 1 Timothy 3, I hope, because that's what a godly character is, a godly Christian character is. I hope most people don't get drunk and don't beat their wives and don't do all the things the elders aren't supposed to do in 1, in 1 Timothy 3. Do you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean they've got the calling to lead. They must, those, it's those who are calling to lead must have the character, but the character should be demonstrated throughout the church. Okay? And therefore, when you're choosing... When you're choo- this sounds a bit bad, but I hope you hope get get me. Um, you know, when we're in a multicultural church, when we're looking for the next elders or leadership team, whatever, in whatever capacity, we're looking to be multicultural all the time. Understand? So we've got two Asian elders now, one African elder about to come in, because. It's important that every team in the church reflects our multicultural, multi-ethnic nature. Is that all right? It looks... But similarly, we need to be multi-social. That affects our teaching style, how we do things, how we do meals, 
all sorts of things. Because we wanted to be multi-social. You know, when we plant, first planted our church, we were mainly reaching a particular council estate. And that's where all our first converts came from. And gradually, we became more and more middle class. And you have to then keep adjusting again. Because there's that tendency. Redemption and lift is there, but it also can be a bit of a danger. Okay? Um, so we adapt our churches, but not our gospel, to each different social groups, different ethnicity, and different generations. And we adapt our worship similarly. And that can be a battle sometimes. Be flexible how we do things. Then two final things, and I won't go into these in any detail. Cross-centred, not glory-centred leadership style. That comes from the Reformation when Martin Luther pointed out that the popes and so on had effectively a theology of glory. It was all grand, you know? And he said, no, no. Leadership should demonstrate the theology of the cross, not the theology of the glory. Okay, now I could do a whole talk on that, but I won't. Because theology theology of glory has characterised the celebrity culture and consumerism of much Christian leadership, not cross-centred, servant-based leadership. Okay, and finally, strong corporate prayer. Because it seems we get there and then we drift away from it again. Anyone else notice that? Now, you have to be creative... Yeah, tomorrow I'm missing our 24-hour prayer day because I'm teaching here. But, you know, we do different things. And so the, we have a 20, once-a-month 24-hour prayer where everyone takes, and, well, not everyone, but all those that want to, take a section of time and pray through it and so on. But corporate prayer also... It, that's corporate in one way, but then there's other ways like when we gather and different ways we gather. But it's so important and it's, and it's the thing that we lose quickest. Okay. So. Okay. And corporate is important with prayer because the Lord's Prayer that we often quote is a corporate prayer. Our Father. We're praying on behalf of the whole Christian church. When you pray, give us today our daily bread. Give us. So I say, well, you know, I've got plenty of bread in the freezer. But actually, in Uganda, we haven't got bread. Or some people in our church are poor. So we're praying, our, our, our. It's corporate, it's community. And I'll finish with that. 